Philippians, which is uh, uh, verses 5 through 11 of uh, Philippians chapter 2. And this kind of will, the text this morning leads into that which we'll look at next week. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. These verses flow out of what we looked at last week, where Paul uh, urged us to live lives worthy of the gospel. And now he says, beginning at chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, by having the same love, by being one in spirit and having one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. You may be seated. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus prayed for the church. And the central thrust of his prayer was a prayer for unity. He said, let them be one, Father, as we are one. Jesus knew in that moment what a struggle it would be for believers to remain united. And he knew how hard the enemy would work to tear believers apart. And now all these years later, unity is still one of the most pressing needs in the life of the church. It was Paul's burden for the church at Philippi, and it's my burden for our church today. Our text this morning addresses that central theme of unity at three levels. And so at the surface level, we see the the call to unity. And then underneath that call, we see the heart condition that produces unity. And then deeper still, at the, the deepest sort of bedrock layer, we see the underlying source of the unity to which we are called. And so we see first the call to unity in verse 2. Paul urges the Philippians to make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and having one mind. You see, there was a problem in the church at Philippi, and we don't know exactly what, what all the exact issues were, but we do know from the rest of the letter and the context of the letter that, that they, they were not living in the harmony that God intended. There were tensions and dissensions within the body. There was rivalry and and discord. There were sort of competing opinions that led to this competitive spirit. And so Paul calls them to unity. And he stacks together these four expressions that all speak of unity, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and being of one mind. And I agree with most Scholars who see these not as four distinct and separate expressions, but rather as four slightly different ways of saying the same thing. And the pervasive concern in these four expressions is is what I would call a unity of mind. That mind language pervades this whole text and especially these, these four expressions. But it's important for us to understand what Paul means by 
like-mindedness and one mind. What does he mean by that word mind? Well, the Greek word for mind uh, has the sense of attitude or disposition or mindset. And so Paul is not calling for, for sort of an intellectual uniformity. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's, he's not calling believers to think the same on every issue. He's calling Instead, believers to a kingdom-oriented and a Christ-like approach to life. That's the heart of the matter, a kingdom-oriented and a Christ-like approach to life. He's calling them to be bound together by a common, gospel-centered and gospel-driven attitude. That's at the heart of these four expressions. And this is my prayer for us as well. What we need is a robust and a gospel-driven unity, especially now as we find ourselves in the midst of such polarizing issues that, that are uh, around us in our culture and in, in, our, in our church and, and everywhere we look. We are not all going to agree on every political issue. We're not all going to have the same views and the same convictions about things related to COVID and masks and vaccines and all these other things. And the enemy wants nothing more than to use these things to divide us. And to create hostility and tension and, and competitiveness and, and sort of dis, de, uh, debilitating dissension. We are called to unity, not by coming to an agreement on these peripheral or non-essential issues, but by focusing on our like-mindedness as citizens of heaven and partners in the gospel. This is where we need to come back to again and again and again. Whatever, whenever we begin to get sort of venture off and get torn apart by these other, other issues, we need to come back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this is what defines us. And this is where our true unity lies. And if we understand that and embrace it, then we are free to debate and discuss and disagree about all kinds of secondary things. But at the end of the day, we remain firmly planted and united in our core convictions about the gospel of Christ. At the end of the day, we don't let petty disagreements distract us from the, the real battle against our common enemy. Now, as we consider this call to unity, there's one more thing that, that must be said lest I be misunderstood. And that is that the call to unity is a call to unity within, within the confines of biblical truth. If professing believers venture away from what is clearly taught in Scripture, either in their action or in their thinking, then we must call them to repentance and correction. So this is not a unity that, that leaves no room for, for correction or for calling each other to account. The net of unity must not be cast so wide as to include unbiblical belief or unbiblical practice or unbiblical thinking. J.C. Ryle put it rather bluntly when he said, Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. Or in the similarly blunt words of Spurgeon, if you know Spurgeon, he can often tend to be rather blunt. Uh, Spurgeon said, Unity without truth is hazardous. Only those sanctified through the word can be one in Christ. To, to teach otherwise is to betray the gospel. And the burden on my heart as pastor of this church is the same as the burden on Paul's heart for the church at Philippi. It is that burning desire for a deep and abiding and authentic unity. 
but it must be a unity that is grounded in the truths of God's word. So Paul calls us to unity in verse 2, and then he goes on in verses 3 to 4 to show us the deeper condition of the heart that produces this kind of unity. This is the next deeper level. And that heart condition is, in a word or in two words, humble selflessness. Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. A little boy and his sister were riding on a new wooden horse that they had received as a gift. And after riding for just a matter of seconds, the little boy turned to his sister and said, You know, if one of us got off, there would be more room for me. And that little scene, I think, captures the prevailing sense of human nature, doesn't it? That we are by nature bent inward. It is most natural to us to cling to our own agendas and to value most highly our own opinions and to put our own interests above the interests of others. That's what comes most naturally to us. In Dostoevsky's book, Crime and Punishment, there's a character named Peter Petrovich uh, who makes the argument that the world is better off when people focus only on themselves. This is the way to go, he says. This, this is better for everybody if everybody just focuses and cares most about themselves. And at one point in his argument, he says this. He says, love yourself before all others, for everything in the world is founded upon self-interest. Well, that is the prevailing sentiment of humanity in its fallen condition. We are, by nature, a me-first people in a me-first world. Let me just go on social media if you question that and spend five seconds on social media and you'll see that that's the case. But Paul calls us to the exact opposite, doesn't he? He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And how hard it is to do that. At, at the heart of humble selflessness is putting others first. Putting their needs above your own. And it means, and it will involve self-examination. It means looking inward to see your own faults instead of looking to the faults of others. It means giving as much or more weight to the opinions of others as you do to your own. It means listening openly to what others have to say instead of impulsively arguing for your own position. It means authentically saying those four words that are so hard for so many of us to say, I could be wrong. It means being able to examine yourself authentically and openly enough and having enough humility of heart to be able to say, you know, I, I can see things. I, 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 will, I have a state of mind and a position in our relationship together that I will listen to what you have to say. And will not just automatically assume that my way is right, that my way of thinking is right, that my position is the better one. Imagine what a beautiful community the church would be if we all put this kind of humble selflessness into practice. Imagine what a difference it would make if we all put more effort into listening rather than defending. 
and giving rather than receiving and understanding rather than accusing and serving rather than retaliating. Because it's so easy in our relationships with one another, whether it's in family systems or in marriages or in church bodies, it's so easy to get into that cycle of sort of bickering and competitiveness and, and arguing and defending and retaliating, all of which are me-driven, putting self-first responses. What a beautiful thing the church would be. if we practiced humble selflessness. The Chinese evangelist Watchman Nee once told a story about a Christian rice farmer that he knew in China. And the farmer had his fields uh, up high on a mountain where water was hard to come by. And so every day he pumped water into his field so that the rice could grow. And he had a system of of dikes and locks around his fields to keep the water contained in his fields. So every day he would pump the water in and keep the, 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 uh, the dikes locked so that the water would stay. But this farmer had a, a neighbor who lived just down the hill, and he was a farmer as well. And whenever that Christian farmer would pump water into his own fields, the neighbor down the hill would open up the dikes to let the water run out of that Christian farmer's field down into his own. And for a while, this Christian farmer just ignored it and didn't do anything about it, but it got to the point where he realized that something had to be done. This injustice had to be put to an end because it couldn't just let this wrong keep going on. And so he got together with some of his Christian friends and they prayed together and they asked for wisdom and discernment to know how to respond and know what to do in this situation. And they came up with a solution. And so the next day that Christian farmer got up early in the morning and he filled his neighbor's field with water first. And they went in to his own and he filled his own with water. And the next day, he did the same thing. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. And this went on for a couple of weeks, filling the neighbor's field first and then attending to his own. And do you know what happened? Not only did that neighbor stop opening up the dikes, but he was so moved by that Christian farmer's selfless gesture that he asked the that Christian farmer, what made him so different? Like, he had never seen that before. Why would you do that? What is it about you that, that makes you respond in that way? Because that's not the normal way to respond. There's something different about you. I want to know what that is. And God worked through that conversation to open up that neighbor's heart to receive Christ. We see in that little story the transforming power of humble selflessness. And what just little acts, what, what a big difference is little acts of humble selflessness can make. Now, before we move on uh, from these verses, there's one more thing that I want you to see in verse 3. And that is when Paul says, do nothing out of vain conceit, he uses the Greek word kenodoxia. And kenodoxia is a compound word that's made up of the word keno, meaning empty, and doxa, meaning glory. And so kenodoxia, when you put those two things together, literally is the pursuit of glory that is empty because it is self-focused. It is vain glory or empty pride or, or empty glory, whatever you want to call it. It is the pursuit of glory that is empty because it's self-focused. Now, 
The reason I want you to see this is because Paul will use these same two words, not, in a, not compounded, but individually, these same two words in a dramatically contrasting way in his description of Christ in the next verses, in verses 5, five through 11. Let me just show you what I mean. So he will say how Christ emptied himself, that is, keno, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place, to the glory that is doxa of God the Father. You see the, the play on words and the contrast in that play on words. The contrast in this play on words could not be more striking. The message that Paul is sending is that we are full of ourselves and end up with empty glory. Whereas Christ emptied himself and was exalted to true glory. The heart condition that produces a unity, the unity that God demands and requires is a heart condition like that of Christ, a heart of humble selflessness. And that brings us then to our final observation. We have seen that we are called to a unity of mind, which, which means a unity in our kingdom-oriented approach to life. And we've seen that this unity, unity to which we are called flows out of a heart condition of humble selflessness. But if that's all there is to it, then we are left with little more than a self-help guide to unity. And if you know anything about our church and anything about our theology and anything about our approach to Scripture and our understanding of Scripture, you know that we are not a self-help kind of church. Because Scripture does not send a self-help kind of message. And neither does Paul in this text. Paul takes us much deeper than that. His call to unity in verse 2 hangs on what he says in verse 1. And this is really, though it's, you know, from a physical perspective, it would be kind of reversed, but verse 1 is the bedrock, the, the, the deep underlying source of everything that Paul calls us to in these verses. And what he says in verse 1, then, is the underlying source. And we find in verse 1 four conditional statements that are stated as ifs in the English translation. But in the Greek text, the constructions have the meaning of since. And so it reads like this. Since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, and since you have comfort from his love, and since you have a common sharing in the spirit, and since you have experienced his tenderness and his compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. You see, the, the underlying source of a unity that flows out of humble selflessness is our union with Christ and the blessings we have received in him. The more we grasp the depth of his self-giving love for us, the more we are moved to extend self-giving love to others. The more we, we ponder his humble selflessness, his character, the more we find that same kind of character of humble selflessness fashioned and produced in us. And so in the end, the call to unity is really a call to worship at the foot of the cross. The only way to have our hearts turned inside out is to be overwhelmed with wonder over the self-giving love of God in Jesus Christ. There is a, a fictional story that has often been told. You've maybe heard it before, but I'm going to share it with you, even if you have, because I think it illustrates the point. So there's this fictional story about an orphan boy who was living with his grandmother when the house caught on fire. And the grandmother tried to 
get upstairs to rescue the boy, but she was unable to get up there, and, and she died in the flames. And so the boy was stranded up there and began crying for help, and his cries were answered by a man who, who, climbed, who heard the cries, and he climbed up an iron drain pipe to get up there, and then climbed back down with the boy clinging to his neck, and both of them were able to get out of the house and to safety. And some time went by, and there was a public hearing to determine what would come of the boy. And there were a handful of people who wanted to take the boy in, and they each made their case as to why they should be the one to get the boy. And all the while, while these handful of people were, were making their case before the judge as to why they should get the boy, the boy was off on it by himself, sitting in a corner with his head down. He didn't want to go to any of them. And at the very end of the hearing, a stranger walked to the front of the room, and he didn't say a word. He just held out his hands, revealing severe scars. And this was the man who had saved the boy's life. His hands had been severely burned on that drain pipe when he had climbed up and back down again. And when the boy saw this man whom he recognized with his burned hands, he, he, uh, his face beamed and he threw his arms around that man. And with that, the hearing was settled. The boy would go to the man with the scarred hands, the man who had given himself to save the boy from the fire. It is, like I said, a fictional story. But the words of Paul in this text beckon us to behold the scarred hands of Christ. It's only when we comprehend the depth of his self-giving love for us that our hearts begin to be shaped by self-giving love for others. It's only the wonder of the cross that can move our hearts to true humility and change. It's only as we fix our eyes on the one who gave himself for us, the one whose hands were pierced for us, that we can be brought to true unity. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus prayed. And he prayed for unity in the church. He said, let all of them be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they be brought to complete unity. And if what Paul says is true, then the best way to achieve the unity for which Jesus prayed is to fill our hearts and our minds with worship to spend time in worship, to spend time in God's word, to spend time singing songs of praise and, and listening to, to biblical truths, spending time praying together and gazing together upon the beauty of the cross. So let us come with open hands to the cross. Let us turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's bow together. Oh Lord, as we come before your throne in a time of silent prayer and response this morning, Lord, it is my desire as pastor and I believe it's our desire as believers 
to come to this kind of unity to which we are called in these verses, to be one with each other as you and the Father are one, to be brought to complete unity. And we'll do so, O Lord, as we have hearts that are shaped and fashioned into the humble selflessness and self-giving love of Christ. And our hearts will be shaped and fashioned into those kinds of hearts as we spend more time with you in worship, as we gaze upon the beauty of the cross, as we comprehend in ever-deepening ways the, the depth of your love, your self-giving love for us. So, Lord, in this time of silent prayer and response, impress upon our hearts and minds, O Lord, the depth of your love. Lord, allow us to see anew the wonder of the cross of Christ. Lord, give us eyes to see as we come before you in silent prayer. O Lord, lead us as husbands and wives, as children, sons and daughters, family systems, individuals, and as church, as a church family and church body. Lead us, O Lord, to see ever more and in ever deepening ways the grace that you have lavished on us. Impress upon us, O oh Lord, that since we have encouragement from being united with Christ, that since we have deep comforts that come from his love for us, his self-giving love for us, and since we have a common sharing in the one spirit through a common faith, and since we have received the riches of your tenderness and your compassion toward us, On the basis of all of these things, O oh Lord, may we become more and more like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and having one mind, a common, gospel-driven attitude and disposition. And may we then May we produce this kind of unity of mind, O oh Lord, as we have cultivated within us hearts that do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of the others. And then, O oh Lord, 
May we watch and see as unity is produced within us to such a degree that it's like a beautiful tree that thrives and flourishes and bears fruit to your glory. Lord, may it be so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.